The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Bill Janeway, and he is the author of The Innovation Economy. He was an early guest where, quite bluntly, I really didn't know what the hell I was doing. And I think this conversation is far more detailed and in-depth if you are at all interested in venture capital, technology investing, uh, and the role of both the defense and intelligence agencies specifically and the federal government generally in impacting uh, venture investing, technology, long-form investing where there may not be an immediate payoff, but ultimately you end up with a really significant set of payoffs, whether we're talking about uh, the interstate highway system, the cross-continental railroads, the space um, race for the moon. All of these things had no immediate expected payoff, but long-term they've delivered uh, a tremendous amount of value. And the intersection between technology, venture capitalism, and economics uh, is something that Professor Janeway specializes in. I think you'll find this conversation absolutely fascinating. So with no further ado, my conversation with Bill Janeway. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Bill Janeway. He has a storied background in both economics and venture capital. He helped to create BEA systems, which connects software apps to database. Had you invested about $50 million into BEA uh, when Bill started putting money into it, it would have become over $6 billion in six years. He is an affiliated lecturer of economics at the University of Cambridge, where he teaches a class, Venture Capital in the Innovation Economy. He's a senior advisor at Warburg Pincus, where he helped build technology investing platform there for over 30 years. He's on the board of the U.S. Social Science Research Council, the governing board for the Institute of New Economics, the Field Institute for Research in Mathematical Sciences. Uh, no less a character than Mark Andreessen called him a key creator of the modern venture capital world. He is also the author of Doing Capitalism in the Innovation Economy, Markets, Speculation, and the State, Bill Janeway. Welcome back to Bloomberg. It is great to be back here, Barry, especially with you. That is quite the curriculum vitae, and I we left a ton of it off. We'll talk a little bit about BEA systems in a bit. I want to start with your academic background in economics. You, you're a valedictorian at Princeton. You get your doctorate uh, from Cambridge in economics. How do you go from that to venture capital? Well, actually, it's a closer connection than I knew at the time it would be. 
When I got to Cambridge, I was studying under the students, the top students who had been taught by John Maynard Keynes. Mm -hmm. And I wrote my dissertation for Richard Kahn, who invented the multiplier as a way of looking at the impact of government spending or taxes on the macro economy. But all of the work that I did there, everything I learned there was about decision-making under conditions of uncertainty. Decision-making by investors, workers, consumers, businessmen, politicians, who cannot know what the full consequences of their actions are going to be. Now, isn't that effectively every actor in the economy? You got it. But by the time I finished my doctorate and was thinking I would pursue a course in economics, in academic economics, it turned out that economics was converting itself for a long generation into a kind of mechanical process of cranking out the efficient outcome on the assumption that everybody knew everything. That the marketplace itself is already reflecting all the information that's available and therefore, right. hey, nobody can really beat the market consistently over time. Or, and, or so Chicago, exactly. uh, Pharma and French and exactly. others said. And right across the whole economy, the rational expectations hypothesis said government can't have any lasting impact on the economy because people in the economy will react and offset whatever it tries to do. In any case, I decided that at the ripe old age of 27, I could not take this stuff and spend my life pumping it into the brains of innocent undergraduates. <laughs> so I went on, uh, I, I, I went on what I, th I talk of as my, my 35 year sabbatical, right. where in the trenches of venture capital that I evolved in through joining an extraordinary firm whose core competence was understanding the science-based industries, mm -hmm. from chemicals to pharmaceuticals to electronics to computing, I discovered that what I learned at Cambridge as an academic economist was directly relevant to trying to frame the sort of decisions and the sort of ways of protecting yourself, your investors, and the entrepreneurs you are backing from the necessary ignorance of operating at the frontier of technology. So that's pretty fascinating. I want to push back on the concept that, hey, this efficient market hypothesis really doesn't get it right. A perfect example I read over the weekend while I was doing a little research for, for our conversation, some people have been wondering why the U.S. tax cuts haven't had a larger impact on either employment or wages or R&D. And the most interesting explanation I came across was, well, everybody has already operated on the basis that there are tax havens, and this 35% corporate tax rate is no big deal anyway. We're all paying 18% um, uh, right. or less. Therefore, a giant corporate tax cut has much less of an impact than you would imagine. True or false, and what does that say about your belief that, hey, maybe the market is less efficient than we think? First, I think that's correct. I don't think the, on average, it's about 18%, not 35%. And of mm -hmm. course, particularly the digital companies that can move their cash flows and their assets around right. by keys on a computer. They're not manufacturing steel and, That's and right. building That's right. locomotives. They're, it's they're, just they're, code. They're very mobile. They're very mobile. Second, however, 
The tax cut has had a significant, substantial impact on available, accessible cash flow, Mm -hmm. not reported earnings. So that, but what's happened to that cash flow? And this is something, again, about the nature of the stock market. That cash flow has overwhelmingly been devoted, Apple being the most extreme example, stock buybacks and dividends. Mm-hmm. That not not raising wages for workers, not investing in the new stuff, but but putting more money in the in the pockets of stockholders, which you know is a rational response of management, mm-hmm. particularly when their stockholders, who are increasingly index funds, right, are necessarily very short term oriented. And the executives are also short-term oriented. Hey, we we eliminated the agency problem by tying their compensation to the stock price. So so you go on this 30-year walkabout and you spend some time in um, Warburg-Pinkish. You spend some time at Eberstadt and Company. What prompted you to say, hey, this venture capital thing... It's going to be big one day. I want to stay involved in this. You know, it's funny. It was actually a crossover from being an economist to being a venture capitalist. In the, in the mid-late 70s, when I was a kid on Wall Street, I was really interested in the kind of longer-term strategic issues around the economy. There had been a big fiasco, one of the first attempts to use computers to model the economy, not mm-hmm. just model the, the, model the world. Came out of MIT and it was kind of a fiasco. It was called the Limits of Growth Study for the Club of Rome. And this was referenced in your book, if yes, I'm remembering it, correctly? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. But the, the, the young guys at MIT who'd been caught up in this, they learned a big lesson. And they set out using computers to build very detailed, very granular local models of economic behavior. And I stumbled on these guys as I was trying to find out how to think about and how to handle the consequences of the first oil crisis, which blew up all the econometric models. They were useless Mm -hmm. because all the important variables of the economy from interest rates to exchange rates to inflation rates had just been blown out of the historical database. Well, I found these young guys and I got a message. The message was, hey, this is what computers are interesting about. It's not just being a flexible typewriter or or being a faster or more flexible adding machine. You can build simulations and explore the behavior of the world. That got me interested in computers. From there, the first wave of artificial intelligence, the first wave of the hype for artificial intelligence, that got me out to Xerox Park, the kind of the haven for the most creative people in the computing world. Thanks to a friendship with John Seeley Brown, who was on his way to becoming director of Xerox Park, I got immersed ahead of the game, a kind of kind of unfair advantage in seeing where computing was going to go. I want to circle back to what you said uh, about the Xerox uh, Research Center um, that gave us things like the graphical user interface, the mouse, Essentially, that was Steve Jobs's aha moment that led to the first Absolutely. Macintosh. You said it gave you an unfair advantage. Expand on that. It gave me the unfair advantage of seeing that computing computers were not, which were dominated by the IBM mainframes mm-hmm. with a secondary center in the digital equipment mini computers and and the competitors with digital equipment, these were very centralized systems. They had dumb terminals, green Mm -hmm. screens. You couldn't do any local work. 
everything went back to the mainframe or the mini computer to be processed. It was a very rigid, inflexible, and of course, because each of these systems were proprietary. If you were a digital equipment customer, let alone an IBM customer, you had to buy everything from them. And believe me, they made money on that. So it was a giant centralized system as opposed to the modern, between phones and laptops and iPads, we have a completely decentralized system, although theoretically, as we move to the cloud, we're kind of moving back a little towards... It's an towards... interesting, it, but, but in a very different way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'll come back. That's a good point. Let's, let's hold that thought. What you could see at Xerox Park were computers being networked together with special functions that they could be optimized for, while the machine in front of you was designed to be helpful. Uh-huh. It, was, you know, it was mapped to how people work. And it was much too expensive. And Xerox management back in on the East Coast uh, couldn't get their heads around the right. notion of making the kind of high-risk, long-term investments. So companies like Adobe and 3Com were founded by people who left Xerox Park. That kind of raises the question, why did they even have a Xerox Park? At least with AT&T and Bell Labs, later Lucent, they were using their own research to build out new products. Well, or, or were they? Up to a point. Mm-hmm. There was a deal. AT&T in 1956 cut a deal with what was then an economically active government. Right. Unlike where we are today. Right. Back when it was a legitimate legal monopoly. Right. And the deal was it could keep its monopoly on long distance telephones if any technology developed at Bell Labs that was not directly used for communications mm-hmm would be licensed on a fair and non-discriminatory basis to the world. And that's where Unix came from. That's where a whole raft of innovative technologies that had general purpose use, not just for communications, Mm -hmm. were given to the world, given to academic researchers, given to companies that were learning what to do with this stuff and laying the basis for the digital revolution that began to emerge in the early 1990s. So that that government deal with AT&T was very different than what Xerox Park's deal was? They they just didn't know what to do with that? Well, two things. One, um, neither did Mm AT&T. They licensed it. They, the big deal they cut with the government in 1982, where they gave up the long distance monopoly and they broke up the company in return for the opportunity to use the technology and go out and compete with IBM and digital, mm-hmm. demonstrated that I, AT&T had no ability to compete right. in commercial markets. Xerox is a different story. Xerox's monopoly was based on patents, uh-huh. patents for this phenomenal ability to make copies, very low cost, and it generated an enormous amount of cash. It was a different kind of innovator's dilemma, however. The existing business was so good and so certain that when one of the young guys from the park would come east and say, I got a great idea for a business plan, just give me 20 million bucks, and in five years, I'm gonna have a $300 million business, and it'll be profitable, and it'll be worth you know, a billion dollars. And they'd look at him and say, wait a second, that is so high risk. We could take that same 20 million bucks and we'll hire a bunch of additional engineers and salesmen. We know exactly what the return's gonna be. Right. Go, back, go back to your cave. And they, had, they finally worked out, but it took a long time. In the late 80s, they worked out that, you know, 
if they just did a deal with the young entrepreneurs and took 20% of the company in return for giving them the intellectual property, the Mm -hmm. patents, and then let them go out and find venture capital, Xerox wasn't trying to build the business. It was a beneficiary of the work that had been done on its nickel Right. Out at Xerox Park. That actually worked. And a couple of really valuable businesses what, were What created. came out of that? Documentum, for example. Right. Major company. One but of the, they missed a ton of stuff that came did. out. It Apple, took Adobe, go down the list. Those are just the first two A's. What else came yeah. out of that? Well, Apple, they never had a chance to invest in. That was, that was Apple. That was Steve Jobs being the brilliant opportunist he was. Uh-huh. And, um, uh, but it took him 10 years. It took the corporate bureaucrats back in Stanford 10 years to work out that it would be better to own 20% of something versus 100% of nothing. So let's let's talk about another institution that came up with a similar idea, and that is the NSA, CIA, DOD. Going back to the age of DARPA and DARPAnet, why are our national security agencies so interested in startups and technology, how much of this stuff actually finds its way into real-world spy versus spy usage? Well, there's no question that from speech recognition to the geographical positioning satellites and on to all of the machine learning technologies, Mm -hmm. uh, the U.S. intelligence agencies have been major funders of upstream research. Um, That goes back a long way. Of course, the PageRank algorithm couple of graduate students at Stanford got a grant from the NSF, which was directly related to the NSA's interest in being able to do efficient search of what people were doing and saying on the internet. Um, so there's, there's a history there that goes back to the 50s. That's, that's ironic, given that Google just rejected. Yeah, yeah. I mean, essentially, they own their own existence to the uh, intelligence agencies. Is that, is that a, Am I overselling that a little bit? Well, I think that that kind... There was a link, certainly, to the NSF. I mean, mm-hmm. the funding for the research work as graduate students that produced the PageRank algorithm that was the basis for Google came from the National Science Foundation. The complex history, however, of how from silicon to software and then onto the internet, all of the fundamental building blocks of the digital revolution were initially the, the consequence of upstream research financed by the government and the government as the first customer for this stuff mm-hmm. when it was still immature, when it was too expensive and too unreliable for commercial use. That changed... That change, big changes took place between 1980 and 1983. On the one hand, in 1980, the PC revolution began to take off and the commercial markets began to be bigger, whether it was for, whether it was for micro, microprocessors or for software, bigger than the government market. Second, a bill was passed through Congress which said that DARPA had to justify every dollar it invested in terms of its direct military significance. It hadn't been that way before. It'd been a much broader, much, you know, there's a, there's a great line from the, from the play that became hey, Hello, Dolly. Uh-huh. You know, Dolly says, you know, money is like manure. For it to spread do, it around. For it to do any good, you got to spread it around. And that's what DARPA did. DARPA was an extraordinary institution, particularly in the years from, the, from Sputnik, which was why it was founded, 1957-8, through the 1970s. Se- seems kind of short-sighted to, uh, to cancel it. Let's, let's talk about Warburg Pincus, because you've been affiliated with them for a long time. 
You're a senior advisor there. You helped to build their technology uh, research and investing platform. Uh, tell us what brought you to Warburg back in 1988. Well, I'd, I'd known the firm for a, almost a decade. Warburg Pincus was one of the original firms. It was the largest founding member of the National Venture Capital Association. It was founded by two extraordinary men, Lionel Pincus and John Vogelstein, who had a, 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 an idea going back to the 60s that when, when, when the investment banking and brokerage firms in Wall Street, you know, they did deals and they do a movie deal and they mm-hmm. do a, 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 an oil deal. And they're every, all one-offs. And, and every once in a while they do a sort of black box anti-gravity machine tech deal that was gonna right. cure cancer. But it was very amateurish. Lionel and John had a very simple idea. If you actually focus your attention, all of your attention on those investments, understand the context, the business issues, the business model, the competitive situation, you are likely to do a little better than just throwing money against the wall. Uh-huh. So the firm had been, when I joined the firm, it was already more than 20 years old. It had not been an active investor in technology. It had followed the founding great firms like Kleiner Perkins, mm-hmm. Asset Management, the Silicon Valley firms. But as they had raised the first billion dollar fund that anybody had raised in 1986, they decided that maybe they should try to invest in technology the way they invested everywhere else as the lead strategic partner with management. Mm-hmm. I had spent the previous 10 years building an investment practice of raising money for Private companies, sounds a little bit like unicorns, but a big difference. Private companies from institutional investors based on our our firm, the Eberstadt firm, deep work in understanding the science-based industries. I had come to John Vogelstein at Warburg Pincus again and again with really interesting companies, but that required passive investment. Mm-hmm. No control, no board seat. And John would again and again tell me, you know, this looks like a really interesting business. It's not an investment for Warburg Pincus. In the mid 80s, we sold our firm to a British merchant bank as brokerage commissions and our business model came under stress. And it became clear after a time that if I was going to do what I'd been learning to do, I had to go someplace else. So John and I had lunch. We talked through, we, we just finished each other's sentences. And I landed at Warburg Pincus in 88 at a wonderful time. Sure, you're, you're looking at the late 80s and the early 90s. That is the golden era of go down the list. Semiconductors, software, right. mobile. Exactly Wow, right. and, and that's still early days of biotech and genetics right. and things like that. Exactly right. And the technologies that I'd been exposed to at Xerox Park, and that I'd done some investing in from Eberstadt secondarily, sort of supporting our in- institutional clients as they made the investments, now these were beginning to mature. So for 10 years, from late 80s, 1988, 89, right through into the heart of the internet.com bubble, we invested, we searched out as many ways as we could find for making a big strategic bet. And the bet was IBM's dominance of commercial computing was vulnerable, exposed, and we can help them lose their monopoly control. And so we invested at the level of the uh, the underlying, the infrastructure software, that's BEA and Veritas, enterprise applications, three or four companies. And we, I think, got a major shift 
in the most important industry that now exists, we got it right at the right time. So did I get the numbers about BEA correct? Because they're just astonishing. $54 million invested into BEA Six years later, becomes six point five billion. Is that about right? Well, yeah, yeah, it is right, but there's a there's a postscript mm-hmm. because John Vogelstein was a great student of markets, and he'd he'd studied, he knew bubbles come, bubbles go. Sure. When's it, when it's too good to be true, it's too good to be true. I had actually written my doctoral dissertation on nineteen twenty nine to thirty one, mm-hmm. so in a sense, I'd seen the movie before too. So beginning in about 1998, we had this portfolio that represented something like 200, 250 million invested. And we just started liquidating everything we could into the bubble. We owned so much of BEA <laughs> that we only got 85% out <laughs> All right, before the bad. bubble ended. But there was still another five, 600 million that came out later. So it actually was more than 7 billion on, wow. the, on the five, but a little longer time. That, that's just astonishing. My guest today is Bill Janeway. He is the author of The Innovation Economy, which there is a new edition of. And, and let's talk about the differences between the original edition, which came out five, six years ago. Is exactly that? right. And, and the new edition, given what's been going on in the modern world of social networks, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, go down the whole list. How has the universe of digital companies changed versus what you were looking at back in the 90s or the aughts? Well, the, the, the first edition of the book was frankly a kind of celebration of this extraordinarily constructive partnership between the public sector and particularly the Defense Department mm-hmm. and with DARPA as this point of the spear and the private sector, including the entrepreneurs and venture capitalists like me. But Looking, looking uh, back from the last six to 12 months, something really fundamental has changed. Mm-hmm. The digital revolution, which began to reach maturity thanks to the extraordinary speculative funding of the late 1990s, the end of the 20th century. By the way, Dan Gross has a, a, an amusing book called Pop, Why yes. Bubbles Are Eventually Good for the Economy. I know the that's, book well. That's exactly what you're referring to is... If you're laying fiber optic at some ungodly amount uh, per mile, yeah. and then that company goes bust, well, at least we still have the cable laid and somebody buys it cheap out of bankruptcy. J- just like the railroads yep. 100 years before. Right, or computers or televisions yeah, right. or automobiles. Right. Every new industry right. seems to go through that now, boom and bust phase. A lot you know, a lot of bubbles leave you with nothing but uh, ranch houses in the, in the Nevada desert. Financial are, bubbles that's don't right. leave you with the that's same... Right. Well, Not quite the same as technology. And when they bubbles. infect the banking system, the credit system, when they, when they pop, the consequences are horrible. When it's just in the public market, in the stock market, and it pops, there's no leverage. So, right. so the, but in any, case, in any case, what's happened, what's clear over the last five years, the digital revolution has taken on a momentum of its own. It's running out of control. It no longer needs support and subsidy from the public sector. On the contrary. It's attacking the authority of the state at every level. From now, the is, most- is it the, the companies and the platforms themselves, or is it the end users who have found ways to manipulate these platforms, perhaps for the occasional nefarious uh, objective? As Johnny Cash famously said, why do I have to choose? <laughs> of course, it's both. 
it's both. The disruption of micro markets like the New York market for transportation or accommodation. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, it was this IT revolution, this digital revolution that enabled the second great globalization, the integration of financial markets, critical to the financial crisis of 2008. Just by the way, as the telegraph and the steamship produced the first great globalization at the end of the 19th century. But this is happening at a very special time. It's happening when the hard work over a long generation of some very smart, committed people who knew they were doing the right thing by their light Mm -hmm. to render the government illegitimate as an economic agent. But hasn't that, so let me push back uh, uh, on you at least uh, a little bit. Hasn't there always been a group of people who, and and perhaps we know them more intimately these days because nothing is a secret, but there were always survivalists and there were always yeah. radical anarchists and there were always people, you know, I grew up with the moon landing when I was in grammar school and it seemed almost like immediately it was, oh, that wasn't real, that was fake. There's always been... But they've been disparate and not organized well, and not... And in 19, another thing that happened in 1982, Ronald Reagan said, government isn't the solution, government is the problem. Mm-hmm. Now, if you sat down with the entrepreneurs of Silicon Valley, Intel wouldn't have existed without right. the government. Government was the solution to how do you do a startup into a capital-intensive massively strategic industry that nonetheless needs time and support from a collaborative customer as well as the Mm -hmm. benefit of the upstream research funding and silicon processing and all that stuff. The flip side, we had, you know, in 2008, when the world came to an end for about three months, the government was there Right. Around the world, from from London to Beijing to New York to Wall Street. If to you Washington. if you remember in October '08 when the TARP was first proposed on a right. Monday in Congress, and some of the libertarians shot it down. Right, markets collapsed, and by that Friday, it scared senators, Fed That's chiefs, right. congressmen en- enough that by Friday they said, "All right, here's eight hundred right. billion dollars." Right, but as soon as there was a floor under the financial crisis and its economic collapse, then we were back to the world in which the government exists only to screw up markets that would otherwise give you the efficient outcome. And that misses the point, the whole point of the economics of innovation. The whole point is that you need sources of funding that are not focused on immediate economic value, that have a long-term strategic purpose And what we've lost now is two things from the rendering the government illegitimate. One, very limited, if any, ability to respond to the forces of globalization in a way that, which is damaging the constituents, many of whom don't know that there's no other source of support. Mm -hmm. That's looking backwards, but it's also, there's a problem looking forward. If we're going to organize globally, any kind of coherent response to climate change, which, may I stipulate, is real. It's not a Chinese hoax? I I saw a tweet that said, uh, it's just a Chinese hoax. If we're going to form, we need exactly the same kind of upstream funding, upstream commitment to research, to technology development, to support of the deployment, 
that we got with the digital revolution, we're not doing it. We've, we've abdicated. The Chinese are doing it. And that's why the biggest message from where my book stands today is that we may, looking forward over the next generation, have the opportunity to see only the second, only the second passage of leadership of the innovation economy from the incumbent dominant nation, now the United States, 100 years ago, 120 years ago, Britain, Mm-hmm. To a new leader. So let's talk. Let's delve into that because you raised two really interesting issues uh, about China, climate change, and technology. I would be remiss if I did not address the first. Is you talk about having a government entity that can think long term and make these long investments? That is not the description of the United States. That is the description of China. Correct. Whether it's their science funding, whether it's their infrastructure, their high-speed rail, go down the list. It looks like China has said, hey, I'll be happy to jump into the void right. that the United States is leaving, Le- Leaving, whether it's technology, politics, you name it. Right. They're stepping up, and this is not something they've done previously other than that little Genghis Khan thing. Yeah. But short of that, China has been very happy to right. be isolationist. Right. These roles seem to be reversing. Is that is that a fair assessment? I, I think it is. I, I see it in the work that is being done to understand the strategic investments China's making, and not just in China. They're Globally. bringing, yeah, exactly, in Africa, in, in Southern Europe, they're making major investments in transforming the energy infrastructure of those parts of the world. Um, the you do get some people saying, you know, the Chinese are almost embarrassed because they thought it was going to take another 20 or 30 years right. before they could challenge us. Who, who knew we were going to just cede that leadership exactly. mantle to them? Exactly. The, the second issue I have to bring up is, so let's stipulate climate change is real. It Mankind causes it. Uh, you look at the history of the Industrial Revolution forward, we're spewing out all this carbon. And yet when we look at technology, the ability to move to... Wind, solar, geothermal, tidal, just the sources of energy seem to be um, the cost differential versus cheap carbon-based is going from, it used to be hugely expensive and only a handful of of zealots did it, then it became a little more competitive, and now why would you use coal when alternatives are just, are cheaper and cleaner? But we still need, we need some really innovative new technology, particularly energy storage for sources of energy that are intermittent, that did you, come and go. Did you read uh, recently about the, um, I think it was the professor at MIT, who came up with a methodology of pulling carbon out of the atmosphere? Yeah. And actually, it's more of a chemical than a technology. Right. Now, if that t- proves, well, and this it's is, still up see, in the air. But let, let, let's, let's roll things back to 1950. Okay. Okay. The transistor has been invented. Mm-hmm. The, ni- the notion that you can use solid devices with particular properties, not vacuum tubes, right. to, do, to switch signals, is that idea is out there. Nobody knows how to actually turn that into working machines that can function at scale. IBM makes a bet, bets on a material called germanium. Right. The physicists will tell you germanium, from a purely theoretical perspective, was right because the electrons move through it better faster. than silicon. Yeah, exactly. But absolute bear to produce at scale. And silicon is easy to produce at scale. And 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 the guys in Washington 
put out a whole bunch of experiments. And it turns out that this little, this little uh, oil field instrument company in Houston, mm-hmm. Texas Instruments, right. works out how to process silicon. It's not quite as good theoretically, but practically it's much better. It scales up tremendously. And it scales up in response to government orders when the government doesn't care that it's really expensive because right. it's putting, you know, it's building the memory systems for uh, the guidance systems for the Minuteman missile. Right. But then they do something else. They actually broker a deal between IBM and TI. The technology gets transferred to IBM in return for IBM giving TI a big order. Mm-hmm. It's the kind of active intervention based on intelligent experimentation. We should be doing ARPA-E, which has got barely $250 million of funding. DARPA today still has over $3 billion. If we were doing this seriously and we had somebody at the Department of Energy with a mission not to protect the coal industry with all of its 50,000 employees, employees, um, we would be doing the same kind of experimentation on every imaginable form of battery technology, the science of energy, chemical conversion. We need a new Manhattan project for this sort of thing. We have been speaking with Bill Janeway. He is the author of Doing Venture Capital in the Innovation Economy. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Be sure and check out my daily column on bloomberg.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the podcast, Bill. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, I have, I'm so glad the run of questions I had, you and I really didn't get to any of them, which is always a good sign of a good conversation because you say something and it sends me off in a dis- different direction. So I I appreciate your ability to um, to help guide where, where this conversation uh, is going. And you certainly have a illustrious enough career, there's not a lot of stuff that you haven't seen. I know you're not big into biotech, but pretty much anything involving software, electronics, semiconductors, you were right there in the middle of that throughout the whole uh, the whole run. Well, it was it was a great time to get engaged in the as as well. Wait a second, I have to stop you. What is that watch? Oh, that is a yellow Timex. I think it costs eleven dollars <laughs> seventeen cents. I, by the way, I, when I first saw it on your wrist, I assumed, oh, that's an Apple Watch. Yeah. And then you flipped it over, and I'm like, wait a second, that's 40, not an Apple Watch. Forty forty one years ago, yeah, I traded an addiction to nicotine uh-huh. for an obsessive compulsion for running. Okay, and so my default is a running watch, mm-hmm. and I have a good watch. I have a couple of decent watches. But this is sort of what I put on in the morning and 
take off if I'm going to a fancy dinner party in the evening. Right. And you know what? If I if I drop it off the side of a rowboat, who cares? Who cares? Can you still replace it? Are they still making? Yeah, those? they still. You go into any running store and you'll find something like this. Just go for the bottom end. I don't eleven need, bucks. Yeah, if I want to know how my heart's doing, you know, I just take my pulse. Right. I don't need a two hundred and fifty dollar, five hundred dollar, thousand dollar, hundred and twenty nine dollar. Let's see what my pulse is. So my pulse, I'm all excited. My pulse is 83 sitting here talking to it's you. It's been an exciting conversation. Yeah. If, I, if I concentrate, I could get it down to the low 60s, but I really have to bore the audience and just chill out. Chill out. But uh, here, let's see what I, what that just got it down to. Um, nope, still 80. 80. There you there go. You go. Drop um, it like a stone. <laughs> so you take your pulse. You literally just count. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, but... Uh, uh, Analog, you know, analog sometimes is adequate. But is we that are... truly analog? That's the no, first no, digital no, no. watch, so of course you can't. No, I meant this is analog. <laughs> that's truly analog. <laughs> Holding your fingers on your on your wrist—that's an analog readout. <laughs> so, so you you started really full bore into the VC side in the late '80s. Was it in my imagination? It's hard today, and it was easy then. Throw a dart, you're going to find a company that's going to make money. You know, I'll tell you what's really interesting because this is now I'm going to put on my academic hat. Uh-huh. I, there's been a lot of academic research on venture capital, and I'm a student of it, and I've contributed to it, and I teach it. Mm-hmm. So I'm really, I really know this data, and I know the analysis of the data. There are two overwhelming what they call statistical stylized facts about the history of venture capital. It's about since 1980. That's when we start to have real data. The first is there's incredible skew in the returns. Meaning that, that it's a fat head and a long tail, a handful of giant winners. Right. Now, are you talking about the companies? Are you talking about the venture funds first or I'm, both? First, I'm talking about the venture funds. Mm-hmm. If you take all the venture funds that have ever been raised and invested since 1980, a ridiculously small number of those funds have delivered all of the excess return versus the NASDAQ index. Mm -hmm. But here's the second fact, and this is distinctive, if not unique, to venture capital. There is what they call, the academics call, persistence in the returns. In other words, firm X raises fund one, and the performance of fund one predicts the performance of fund two. And let me flesh that out a little bit. So- Fund one does well, so A, institutions throw money at them. They're not wasting a lot of time, energy, resources trying to raise money because people want part of that. But more importantly, the deal flow that they get to look that's at, right. they get first choice, first that's bite exactly at the apple right. everywhere. Exactly right. So that's Kleiner Perkins. Let's go down the list. Well, it, it evolves over time. It, it evolves around. over time. Right. And Dreesen Horowitz was not on that list didn't exist. 25 years didn't ago. Didn't exist. Right. Um, and, and firms go through changes. I will give, uh, you know, uh, in the in the um, 90s, Benchmark was founded, and they've generated a 20-year record now. Right. Pretty good. Really consistent. Elevation really Partners is another one. Well, Sequoia goes way back. Right. Uh, they've now expanded their work. You know, they've really increased the scale of the firm and the fund. And they're investing globally, so we'll have to see, can they maintain with a somewhat different profile the kind of of outstanding results they've had for a generation? Firms also go through generational shifts in leadership. But by and large, the point about this is if you're a a trustee of a pension fund Mm -hmm. and the the consultants come and tell you, you know, you got to play venture capital. 
over time, you're going to add incremental return to the portfolio? The answer is, if you can get into the venture funds that don't need your money, do it, the best funds, but don't just have a, you know, 3% allocation for a $20 billion fund that has to be invested in venture capital because there's a, you know, there's some real good stuff in economics. There's a concept called adverse selection. Sure. Which means if they need your money, you don't want to give it to them. You don't want to be a member of any club that'll have you. Exactly. So by the way, that data set, both the persistency side and the fat head, long tail side, is true for the hedge fund world. It's true yep. for the private equity world. Yep. And arguably, it's true for the world of, of public companies if you're not indexing but buying individual yep. stocks. of uh, We used to think a disproportionate amount of returns came from a small number of companies. The most recent data, and I, I wrote about this some time ago, uh, based on somebody else's study, it's even narrower than we yep. thought. It's a tiny percentage right. of companies delivering more than half the returns. It's it's amazing. Well, it go, that goes with this this institutional change in the market, the rise of people managing other people's money. Right. Where if they don't do at least as well as the index, guess what? Their clients, their investors, take their money away. And then, of course, when more and more of that institutional money is passive index funds, you're by charter, by contract, you can't be a contrarian. So what it means is, you know, cumulatively, you get more momentum investing, mm-hmm. more hurting behavior. At the same time, we've had this extraordinary phenomenon since 2000. The number of public companies in the United States, as you know, it's half of what it yeah, was. Yeah, Just The Wilshire 5000 is about 3,500 companies. That's right. Which is That's right. Kind, of, kind of hilarious. Yeah. There was a wonderful book in the mid-'90s by a, I want to say, Cornell professor— Robert Frank, I'm sure I can find it if I just uh, uh, if I just click. But it was called the Winner Take All Society. Oh yeah, and it looks at things like um, athletes and movies right. and just how you end up with this just unbelievable concentration. Um, yep, Johnson School of Management at Cornell. Right. Uh, Robert H. Frank. Not oh, to be yes. confused I'm, with the, the columnist book. Robert Frank is yep. a different uh, yeah. different person. But we see that across all of the these alternative investment platforms. If you're not in the top, let's right. call it ten percent, you're right. you're you're more or less spending a lot of money for a very low probability of return. But now that feeds into one of the phenomena that actually got me back into looking at this whole process, this intersection of government and the stock market and the market economy, which what I call the three-player game in, in, my, in my books, mm-hmm. in my lectures. It got me going back into it was this amazing phenomenon, the unicorns, the unicorn bubble. The Airbnb, the Ubers, the Theranos, go down the list. The, the well, inst- what, what are those? Are, Uber, we know, is private. Airbnb, they haven't. They're gone. private. They're, they're still they, private. Oh, yeah. Who, who else is on that list well, of they're unicorns? Actually, if, you, if, you, if you actually were to go to Google... Uh-huh. And type in unicorns. Tech, can, tech unicorns. Let's, just unicorns. Just, just unicorns. straight up unicorns. Well, Airbnb did. You know, they in the in the data, Airbnb is usually counted in accommodation and not as a tech company, but it's something like two hundred and fifty globally. So, private so companies. the first in, first one that comes up is Unicorn Wikipedia about the um, 
the mytho- mythological unicorn. Yeah. But the second one is Fortune list of uh, unicorns, and it's Uber, Xiaomi, yeah. Airbnb, Palantir. Yeah, yeah. Well, Snapchat is no longer uh, private. Uh, China Internet Plus, SpaceX, yep. Pinterest. Yep. Let's see the full list. This is already a little dated. I've seen one that that's, we work. I have. I. It's it's something over two hundred globally, private companies valued at more than a billion dollars. Uh, there's, there's tons. So that raises a really interesting question, um, and it goes back to you mentioned the DARPA VC fund is. Barely three billion dollars. Well, yeah, it's not a VC fund; it's a but research. It, it's yeah. a research fund that right. that sort of looks and like. And it's a, now much more heavily towards military technology, right. not the general purpose investing that it used to be. Exactly. But what do you make of the funds like SoftBank has a hundred billion dollar funds? That seems like a lot of capital. Uh, the, uh, there are two things. One, one is. They used a substantial hunk of that money to help buy ARM, not exactly a venture right. investment. A huge ARM holding is a semiconductor. That's uh, right. It's really a, it, it's, it's an intellectual property company that okay. licenses architectures for the devices that dominate the mobile phone business, okay. along with Qualcomm. Um, but they also they, they put $500 million into a no-revenue startup that is a game proposes to deliver a platform for computer games called remarkably enough the company is called improbable that makes sense i didn't make it up improbable 500 million dollars so into a, a startup dollars. half a billion dollars do you have any idea what you can you the kind of party you can have with half a billion dollars? Well, if you're doing ten million dollar deals where you're taking, depending whether you're early stage or late stage, whether you're taking ten percent or forty percent, you could you know, I would rather roll the dice with fifty companies than one exactly. big That's one. That's the point. That because given the given the again, that fathead long tail to get one of the winners, you have to, yep. you know, you you have to. Right. There's a pony in here somewhere. Right, but you got to. That's why they call it spray and pray. See, a couple of different <laughs> things have gone have gone spray on. Spray and pray. So the one is the cost of launching a startup has dropped like a stone. Two guys, a laptop, and an internet connection is free, how someone else described it. Free that. software, open right. source software. Rent your computer cycles and your storage from Amazon. Mm-hmm. You only pay as you use it. Mm-hmm. So getting something out and onto the net costs nothing. So that the old days of ten or twenty million dollars just right. to set up a firm. That's right. Gone. So lots and lots of startups, but the cost of building a business, the cost of getting to scale. And the way these companies are doing it by not by generating cash by selling services and products to customers, but by issuing securities to investors while they give away free in order right. to get users. So that's Spotify and that's Exactly right. You know, it's Airbnb had a well, business model pretty much from the beginning. Uber as did Uber. Well Uber and Uber lost a billion dollars last quarter in cash. Right. Now but they're making it up in volume, so it, it all so, works out. When I was growing up in the business, my mentor was a guy called Fred Adler. Nobody remembers Fred anymore. He was a first-generation uh, venture capitalist, a lawyer who knew how to turn around companies. And he had, a, he had a motto. It was corporate happiness is positive cash flow. Right. What it means is if, 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 if what you're getting paid by your customers 
generates more cash than it costs to deliver the goods or service, two things happen. One, you have a validation that what you're doing is economically worthwhile. And two, you're liberated from dependence on the capital markets, which are there when they're there, and when they're not there, you starve. Now, what's weird about this unicorn bubble is that it's institutional investors who are used to buying liquidity in the market uh-huh. who are, on the one hand, s- prepared to accept so much more risk to get a return in a zero real risk-free rate environment, which right. we've had for almost 10 years, right? and on the other hand, are paying premium values relative to the existing public companies, you know, the Googles and the Facebooks, to get access for what they say is, you know, FOMO, fear of missing out. Sure. Because as you, this goes all the way back to saying that the, the returns are so concentrated. But instead of saying, well, I'm going to put, you know, a million bucks into 50 startups and hope that two or three or four of them blow out and I write off 45 million, but the 5 million gets me big, big returns. They're writing checks that are 50, 100, 500 million right. to play that game. And, and and at rich valuations, right. not they're not early stage and that cheap. Very rich, and so they're exposed to. I mean, the, the unicorn bubble, like all bubbles, will end. Uh-huh. That's the law of bubbles. Bubbles end, um, and you can see two different ways it can end. One is that the Fed indeed normalizes rates, which and, they seem to be in the process right. of, and credit slowly spreads, forever credit spreads open up. And it becomes possible to get, you know, a real return of five, six, seven percent as an institution investing in, you know, triple B bonds, right? Um, which will take a lot of money, shift money within the financial system. The other is that you have, you know, a fraud like Theranos, right? You have the genius, the incredible genius, and energy of Elon Musk. Now, let's say, subject to some. Closer scrutiny. SpaceX, Boring Company, or Tesla, or whatever. Right. He's he's cranking them out. And if there's a cumulative drumbeat of companies that promised unbelievable, transformational technology to the world, failing to meet those expectations, that changes. You, you You know better than I how market psychology, how investors shift the frame and the lens through which they're looking at investments. Mm-hmm. So so let's let's explore that a little bit because my pet thesis is there's just so much damn money yeah. sloshing around yeah. that it's always looking for a home and when you say to somebody, "Hey, a 10-year I could get you, you know, 2.2% or or wherever it will be by the time this broadcasts, yeah. oh, I don't want 2%, I'm looking right. for a right. 6, 7, 10, whatever." So first is all this capital the reason a fraud like Theranos could get, what was it, $900 million in funding? I'm doing that off the top of my head. It, it, I think it was a bit less. It was still huge. And, you know, 700 million, was whatever this it was. Reality distortion field. It certainly is a fact that there is a huge amount of money around. Now, there are two things to say about that. One is the thing about liquidity is the more you need it, the less there is. Sure. Liquidity comes. There was a remember with the liquidity in the buyout market in two thousand and six. You remember the buyout of the Texas utility company, electric mm-hmm. utility company. What was it? Forty billion dollars. Some ungodly number. And in September two thousand and eight, you Nada. couldn't scrape two nickels together. Right. So 
the perception of it is a sort of self-validating process. There's so much money around today that we can assume it will always be around until, guess what, it's not. Mm -hmm. That's where I think the real challenge for the entrepreneurs and the core investors in these unicorns, because the process of learning how to generate, to pay your bills because your customers are giving you more money than you're paying out uh-huh. to serve them, that is a really hard discipline to learn. And if you're being able to raise $1 billion, $2 billion, $3 billion a year, giving up almost no control, giving up minimal amounts of ownership, minimal dilution, right? boy, that's, that's, that's the best heroin you could ever have. <laughs> So when you look at, let's hold Theranos aside, because clearly- It was a fraud. Right. I mean, I don't believe it started as a fraud. And if you haven't read the book, Bad Blood, it was delightful. I read the newspaper columns in real time. (laughs) Um, But the book reveals stuff about it that the columns did not, like the board of directors was. A, did you know they had no voting shares, that she had 99% Elizabeth And that- you know, there were no people from a medical device, well, biotech, we, healthcare background on the board, with, with, at least at first. With all respect mm-hmm. to two great public servants, uh-huh. Henry Kissinger and George Shultz, right. if you're ever given an investment opportunity, we have two members of the board who are former secretaries of state. In their 90s. Remember, in their 90s. Yeah. Politely say thank you right. and pass on by. There, there were people have accused me of um, having hindsight bias in this, but there were some fairly obvious red flags. That being one of them, nobody, every single Very, VC that specialized in med right, tech, right. healthcare, biosciences took a hard pass. That's a screaming red flag, Barry. Talk to any hematologist in the world and they will tell you it. I'm not a hematologist and I don't play one on television, but I do know some very good academic ones. You cannot run the full panel of bloods that they do when they put that needle in your in your they arm. They take a, a full vial of That's blood. Right. You can't get that out of a drop of capillary blood from your finger. Plus, Just, the process of pricking your finger right. um, introduces interstitial tissue and liquids and contaminants. So even if you had enough blood, it's contaminated blood. But what I'm more interested in, and what I think is much more significant, is that these digital platforms and marketplaces, they are disruptive. They are creating opportunities for commerce on a radically different basis. So we're talking about Airbnb and Uber and Lyft and... Anything that is using the digital, especially mobile interface that's of right. a giant computer in your pocket exactly. to, to turn things into a different um, economic value proposition, that's a fascinating area. But it also brings up, however, another aspect of where the digital revolution is. I said it was attacking the authority of the state. Well, of course, a lot of that's happening at the local level. It's not, mm-hmm. And I'm not now talking about grand strategy right. and, or, or the, you know, the future of the planet and climate change and all that. The problem here, and this is a problem for investors, is that too many of the genius entrepreneurs who know that they are creating a new world have zero interest in understanding how we got to this world that they're disrupting. Mm-hmm. And what that means is that again and again and again, they pay no attention or they dismiss the existing ecosystem 
which includes regulatory, but not just political and state regulations, practices, culture. A black cab driver in London is not the same thing as a cab driver in San Francisco, operating in a totally different environment. Meaning that it's highly regulated. They have to pass a test to be a cab driver. They're incredibly knowledgeable in and London. And they have a standing in the culture mm-hmm. that's just different in kind. So what happens when these disruptive, which are much more efficient economically, no question about mm-hmm. that, and much more efficient technologically, but they run into these frictions, these political and regulatory frictions, it slows things down. Now, if you're promising to change the world and you have investors investing in you in pursuit of that 30, 40, 50 percent rate of return that comes from a successful revolution and you get delayed by a year or two, what that it just kills the present value mm-hmm. of that hoped for home run future. So it feeds back into the investment proposition that you're looking at today and you're trying to value today. So let me let me get more specific because I want to make sure I understand that. So you have a set of uh, a regulatory environment and a set of cultural background in a place like London that doesn't necessarily make it all that vulnerable to an outfit like Uber because their cab drivers are valued members of society who contribute more than mere transportation. They're an active part of the history yeah. and the lore of London. Compare and contrast with New York City, right. where I've made the case, and I don't think it's a stretch, that you had a artificially created monopoly. Right. The number of medallions kept low. The ser- quality service, terrible. Good luck finding a cab in the yeah. rain at rush hour. Absolutely. The first moment anything happens, there are no cabs. I, I kind of have gotten the sense that the New York City Council... And the medallion owners conspire to create to artificially constrain market forces. And as soon as Uber right. came along, it exploded because at a certain right. point, the market will not yeah. be denied. Exactly right. Barry, I think you're absolutely right. But the, the point is exactly that you need and it took Uber has and Airbnb has been doing a better job of understanding that these each local market that they go into has to be evaluated in its own terms with its own history and adapt thereto. And not all the regulations, a lot of them are, but not all the regulations are monopolist rent-seeking. You know, right. there's a reason why if you're having people stay in your apartment, you ought to have a fire extinguisher. And right, maybe even fire escape. Yeah, something like and that. And if your neighbors are living there, they yeah. bought an apartment. They yeah. weren't buying into a hotel. Exactly. That's a completely legitimate Exactly issue. right. So my, my point here is only that in addition to all the STEM disciplines, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, that we all focus on as the, the secret for the future, a little more teaching in history, mm-hmm. little more even reading relevant historical novels, uh, a little learning about the political, the evolution of regulations in particular domains, particular regimes, you know, could be very helpful for the entrepreneur or at least their financial investor who's uh-huh. trying to give them a strategic sense of where to bob and where to weave and how to maximize the likelihood that their transformational technology will convert into long-term economic value. So when when you're looking at a 
possible investment in a startup and you're looking at the entrepreneurs, do you find that a lot of these folks are one-dimensional? They have their tech skills. They've come up with something that seems interesting, but they're lacking a broader worldview. Well, you know, I'm 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 at more than one remove away from this. Right. Uh, I'm not running a portfolio, and I haven't for years. Um, but I do stay tuned in. In particular, you mentioned in introducing me. Uh, you know, I'm I'm Tim O'Reilly's outside director at O'Reilly Media. Mm-hmm. Tim is just which is you. O'Reilly Media has become huge. Oh well, and, and certainly the the throw weight in terms of insight, foresight that Tim has demonstrated over a long generation. And by the way, let me just flag his book with the amusing title "WTF: What's the Future?" Mm-hmm. Uh, is a great guide to reading the digital revolution as it has unwound as it has evolved over the last couple of years, last 20 years. Um, Tim Tim has the, the exactly what I'm talking about, a deep interest in the history, and not just the technical history, but the cultural and political history of the, that we are transforming. Uh, and you know, this is not the first time that there's been a political backlash from new technology. William Jennings Bryan, the populist movement at the end of the 19th century, was a response to the railroads. How about the Malthusians? Isn't yeah. that a giant pushback right. against, right. Uh, right. you know, we'll never be able to feed ourselves? Yeah. So the, there is now a giant political pushback. You know, big tech is a target. Mm-hmm. Um, some of it has been invited by a kind of arrogance that goes with, as I say, it goes with the territory of being the source, the leader, the manager, the driver of transformational technology into the economy. But it will be best for everyone if there's a more deeper understanding of the world that is being disrupted, not just understanding of the forces of disruption. And, you know, frankly... Let me, let me chew that over a sec. Better to have a more complete understanding of the world being disrupted than just the disruptive forces themselves. Right. That's exactly right. That's, and that's what this new edition of my book is really trying to deliver and to deliver to audiences that include those disruptors. Mm-hmm. It will be better for our whole system and it'll certainly be better for us to have a, you know, a better chance of responding to the Chinese challenge, which ain't going away. Right. Um, of course, this comes at a peculiar moment in American history, in American politics. In peculiar, to say the least. I mean, that's, uh, and, and, you know, how long this persists, how long we have. Uh, I've got to I, I got to share with you because I know you you know how to read the net. <sighs> One of the more maybe most frustrating things you can do mm-hmm. right now is go to Google Type in the letters OSTP. That mm-hmm. stands for Office of Science and Technology Policy. Mm-hmm. And you'll see whitehouse.ostp.gov. Right. If you bring that up, well, I'll ask you to just let it sit there on the Google screen. Mm-hmm. White, whitehouse.gov is the first thing that comes up. Right. Now look down the list and you'll find something that says Archive. Uh, that's the third thing. So the right. second thing is Wikipedia. Right. Okay. Now go and type, uh, click on the OSTP.Obama archive. 
Right. John Holden, Holdren, director. Yeah. And you'll see that uh, that's how it, what it looked like on January 19th, 2017. You're telling me this has not been updated. No, I'm telling you that this is frozen because that's the way it was, and that's why it's in the Obama archive. Oh, okay, But gotcha. if you go through it, you'll see that there's program after program, people and initiatives and conferences and all that. Now, after looking at that, now go and look at— Here's a November 21st, 2017 article— Donald Trump's science office is a ghost town. So go and look at ostp.gov, whitehouse.ostp.gov. All right, just click the original. Just click the original. Uh, engagement at. It's a one-pager. That's, That's it. That's it. No cl- there, are no, there are no links. There are no links. That's all there is. That's it. So That's, in other words, science and technology, not, not exciting to this group. Doesn't exist. Uh, you know, if you look at the list of unfilled positions, yeah. I, and I'm not sure if, if my original viewpoint on this is correct. I used to think he was running just for a branding exercise. He made most of his money. Read Tim um, O'Brien's book, Trump Nation. Most of his wealth came from the 2012 and forward election where uh, there was a ton of branding opportunities, what have you. I suspected that he wasn't interested in winning, that this was just a great yeah. gift from the media and publicity right. machine. And because most people who run have their list of here's everyone we're going to put yeah. in. The fact it's a year later and they still have all these unfilled yeah. roles kind of makes me think that he wasn't expecting to win. That said, now that you're there, perhaps you may want to fill some of these slots. Well, you know what's going on at the um, EPA. And by by the way, we're recording this in between the weekend of the G7 event and the right before the summit with North Korea. So if there has subsequently been a nuclear war that uh, (laughs) by the time this broadcasts, Neither of us anticipated that. That is correct. That is correct. Or or, I, a, or the other thing, a complete denucle- denuclearization. Right. I don't think either of us are expecting I'll, that. I'll tell you, I, I'm, 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 not, I'm not born to be, I don't practice as a political prognosticator. Mm-hmm. You can read all about that in so many different places. I have those I respect, those I don't respect. But I will say this, and this I think I, I have some expertise in. If you're going to maintain, if a nation is going to maintain leadership, Mm-hmm. in taking science, deriving from it working technology, and converting that technology into job-creating, profit-generating, real business, then one player in that game has to be a legitimate, honest, functioning government. Without so, that, Sounds like socialism to me. There you go. <laughs> you know? But that... Some but people that's, legitimately, that's the I, I, idiotic pushback. I, I know, and that's why going back into that Choosing history. Choosing winners and losers is yeah, how that, they describe it. But, you know, that's what going back into that history of the Defense Department and DARPA and silicon mm-hmm. and software and microprocessors and the Internet, that's why it's so important. Going back to the history of how we, we tied the nation together with transcontinental railroads by taking 9% of the land area of the lower 48 states. Eminent domain. And giving it as a gift to subsidize the building of the transcontinental railroads. Mm -hmm. We built the interstate highway system. Mm -hmm. We built it under a Republican president, Eisenhower. Eisenhower. By the way, the legislation was called the National Defense Transportation Act. It was legitimate because they designed it so that every bridge was high enough 
that a transporter carrying an Atlas first-generation intercontinental ballistic missile could be driven along the interstate, and that made huh. the investment in the public transportation network for the country made it politically legitimate. And am I misremembering this, or is this just the myth? Every fifth mile of the interstate highway system had to be a straight mile that could double as a runway in an emergency? I, you know, I don't know that as a fact. I, I like the concept. Yeah. It certainly was, there was a sense there that public investment for the public good was legitimate, appropriate, and whether you called it, yeah, you didn't have to call it socialism. It was just, it was for the public good. The multiplier effect of the interstate highway system yeah. is still being affected this Absolutely. Fe- felt to this day. Absolutely. All right, so I only have you for a finite amount of time. Let okay. me jump to some of my sure. favorite questions that we ask all our guests. Tell us the most important thing we don't know about you. Well, let's see. I guess the most important thing that you probably don't know is that when I was 45, I ran a 119 half marathon in the 59-minute 10-miler. And then that was the summer. 59-minute 10-miler, that's pretty good. That's under six minutes Yeah, not average. bad for a 45-year-old. No, that's damn good. And uh, ex-smoker. And, um, and then I made this fundamental decision because on the one hand, I was joining Warburg Pincus after I'd been serving out my contract after mm-hmm. we'd sold the Eberstadt firm. And I knew that I was going to be a full-time job. And on the other hand, my wife who was running a consulting business and I had worked out that if we really wanted to have a kid, yeah. staying in the same city as her, her doctor suggested was probably a <laughs> useful enabling step. Right. And so uh, we were going to have a kid. And I decided that you could have a full-time job you could try to be a decent parent. Right. And you could run competitively at the club level in New York. Two out of three. Right. Two you got to give three. one of them up. So that I was the end of the marathon. That was the end of the marathon. That's very funny. You, you mentioned one of your mentors earlier. Tell us, uh, repeat their name and what other folks oh, influenced your perspective. Critical influence on my perspective, as I say, was Fred Adler. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, a Where perfect- is he out of? Fred Fred came from the back streets of Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Got went went from Brooklyn College to Harvard Law School. Joined actually one of the leading Catholic law firms in New York and discovered he was a terrific turnaround artist and put together the financing for the second successful mini computer company, Data General. Oh sure. Back uh, you know now forty five years ago, he and I connected. We collaborated effectively. There's a lot about that in my book. Uh, he was a tough guy. Um, and uh, I used to, he used to tell me that I was really good at admitting my mistakes, and mm-hmm. and I used to tell him that the only compliment he ever gave me was he never <laughs> offered me a job. There you go. But then, then in the mid-'80s, when I was really engaged in this new swinging world of, of information technology, through, uh, through my, my cousin, uh, who was out in St. Louis, he'd been at Monsanto, I met one of the most remarkable figures in the second half of the 20th century, Hyman Minsky. Oh, of course. Hymensky was a maverick renegade. He'd gotten his his uh, doctorate at, at Harvard under mm-hmm. the great Joseph Schumpeter, but he he didn't follow. He he refused to follow the new line of efficient markets and stability begets instability. Right, and he never put it into math, which made it hard for him to be expected accepted. But in 
all of us by the mainstream economists. Who, but who two- all suffer from a horrible sense of physics, yeah. penis envy. It's it's. Yeah. They, I think they've over-mathesized economics. But I got to know I got to know Minsky in, in about brilliant guy, right? Right, and he came east. He he wound up at Leon Levy's Institute at mm-hmm. Bard College, and I used to go there in the late '80s and sort of play hooky from venture capital. But it made me gave me the chance to think and to interact with somebody who was deeply engaged in understanding the dynamics of the financial system. And as you say, how stability breeds instability, how confidence becomes overconfidence, mm-hmm. becomes overlending, and leads to a crisis. And that, that is going to have an impact on the real economy. It's not just happening off there on the markets. And that was a huge, huge benefit, of course, going into the world of the last 15 years. It's, it's unfortunate he didn't live long enough it to is. see his, right. his research and his writings all come true. Right. Just, right. just amazing. Um, any venture capitalist influence the way you look at the world of VC investing? I mean, back in the day? When sure. I was, oh, yeah, sure. Uh, in addition to Fred, um, one of the most phenomenally successful venture capitalists ever was Arthur Rock. Um, Who was the early investor into Intel, if I'm remembering correctly. Intel. He put the financing together originally for Fairchild Semiconductor. Which was the predecessor. Which was the predecessor. He was an investor in scientific data systems, which mm-hmm. was another one of the the uh, first-generation mini-computer companies. It was bought by Xerox. The first It was the first billion-dollar exit in the history of the venture capital wow. industry. Um, and, of course, he was, along with the venture arm of the Rockefeller family, he was the original investors in Apple. Huh. Um, so I hope he's still invested. Yeah. Um, that, that, that's, a, that's a fascinating run. Let's talk about books because you mentioned a few. Yep. Um, this is everybody's favorite question. Tell us your favorite books, VC, economics, fiction, nonfiction, I don't care. What do you read and what do you think other people should read? Well, I, I, I mentioned Tim O'Reilly's WTF. WTF. What's uh, the future? What's the future? <laughs> um, the, um, you know, I've been, I, I read a lot of history. I read a lot of history. I've been just stumbled on. An extraordinary book that I, did, I should have known existed, and I wish I had because I sure would have used it in my book, and I will be using it in my economics course at Cambridge. It's called Funding a Revolution. Uh-huh. It was published in 1999 at the peak of the Internet bubble by the National Academies of Sciences. It's a detailed, granular report on each program through which the United States government created the digital revolution. Huh. It, it, you know, it's not for everybody, perhaps. I found it riveting because you had the, the people, the names, the programs, where they came from, where they went. Um, but then on the other hand, um, I read um, the it's a Harvard historian, Sven Beckert, mm-hmm. wrote a book on the cotton industry, the, the, the cotton textile industry, which uh, came out about five years ago or so. It is an amazing uh, examination of the first global industry. Again, an industry which critically depended on the power of states to create the sources, the, 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 the raw cotton coming in, mm-hmm. and the dynamism of entrepreneurs, 
and speculative capital. Let me ask you about a couple of books because you, yep. you made me think about a few. Not Andy Grove's Only the Paranoid Survive, but right. there was a book on the history of Intel along with uh, Rock and Fairchild Semi. Uh, is it Inside Intel could have been? I think that's the book that really tracks the history. Uh, I thought that was fascinating. I don't know if you, yeah. you read I, that. I, I don't know that one. I do know the you know, the uh, fumbling the future at Xerox. Right. Uh, which tells the story. It's pretty, um, it's pretty uh, tough. And then what about, have you read Scott Galloway's The Four? Google, Apple, Facebook, no, and no. Amazon? I, you know, I read, I read a lot of academic papers. And, right. I, and that's one of the reasons I uh, teach the course in a way. It, may, it forces me to stay up with the literature. Uh -huh. And, you know, something we haven't talked about, but this is a message I want to deliver. Um, 2008 was a, a crisis. It was shocking, and it almost brought the world economy down. But for economics as a discipline, for finance as a discipline, it was the gift that keeps on giving. It has shocked those disciplines out of a kind of complacent assumption that the market will always deliver the right answer reliably and with resilience, and it has generated a body, a growing body, mm -hmm. of much more realistic and relevant academic work based on a shift of focus from pure theory towards empirical analysis. E economics gets its own Minsky moment. Is yeah, that right? that's exactly right. Quite, quite fascinating. Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. Oh, <laughs> more than one. Learning by failing. Um, well, I'll tell you, and I, the story's in the book. Um, when we were working how to invest, one of the passages towards investing and helping IBM cease to be a monopoly mm -hmm. came through a company that we started right around 1990, 1989, 1990. This was when the European community, the single market was created. And we, we, we hooked up with a couple of American entrepreneurs who knew the European computer, commercial computing industry, really well. Mm -hmm. And they had perceived it was kind of a hole in the market. In the U.S., you had a host of new companies, software companies, that were delivering tools for making it easier and more efficient and more productive to use a big IBM machine. And that their technology, their products, didn't get to Europe because they were too small to build a European channel. So the idea was we would get together, we would buy a set of service companies that provided people to the IBM data centers and spread across all of industrial Europe, just the way it was in the US. Right. And then we would bring into them products that we licensed from those American companies. And that way we would build a pan-European business. It was called EasySoft. Um, there were three entirely separate independent reasons why this was a really bad idea. <laughs> the first was between doing a project as a service company and walking away and selling a product that you are responsible for and you have to support is chalk and cheese. It Very di different. Totally different. Second, those companies in the U.S., there were three things that could happen to them, the people we were licensing product from. One, they could grow up and succeed and get big and want to take their products back. Right. Two, they could fail 
completely. No more license. And we were well, and but we were stuck supporting the product without the tech, the right. techies who'd built it. Or three, halfway in between, they could be bought by Computer Associates, a really big, ugly company at that time. Right. And that was the worst of all. And one of each, at least one of each, happened. And then the final reason was it turned out that the IBM data center was no longer a rich, vibrant, growing market. It was stagnating, it was declining. That lesson was worth all the money we wrote off in EasySoft because it said, now's the time. Now we can go at IBM. Amazing. What sort of advice would you give to a millennial or someone just beginning their career who uh, is thinking about technology, venture capital, et cetera? Well, you know, in a way, I've already given it. Um, you know, half of all the male undergraduates uh, at um, Stanford are taking computer science. Right. I think more than that at MIT. You don't have to tell them to take computer science. What I would say is, along with your computer science, along with your double E, read history. Read the history of economics, but also of politics. Broaden their outlook at Broaden the world. Broaden your outlook and look for, you know, the great novels. I'll tell you, if more people had read Trollope's The Way We Live Now, which is about a fraudster mm -hmm. operating in the context of financial speculation about technology 150 years ago, you know, we might not, we'd have had, fewer people would have followed Bernie Madoff. I knew and, you were going to go there. Right, right. Amazing. Yeah. And, and our final question, what do you know about the world of venture investing today that you wish you knew 30 or 40 years ago when you first started exploring this space? Well, I guess when I first started, I didn't perhaps have enough appreciation that the terms of the relationship with the entrepreneur matters so, so much. And one of the things I, I worry about mm, now, that's interesting. you know, you can see that there's been this sort of shift in the terms of trade. They used to say the golden rule is he who has the gold rules. Makes the rule, right. Yeah, but that's not the case when you're talking about founders, you know, whether it's Elizabeth Holmes, right. who owned 99% of the voting shares. He who the has stock. the controlling stuff right. makes the now, rules. There, there's some, there can be, you know, you can see that at Google and at Facebook, with all that's going on at Facebook, because they're exempt from real governance by stockholders. Because of the ownership stake of right. the, the controlling stock by Zuckerberg with Facebook right. or with uh, Page and uh, Brin at Google. Right. They can, they can afford to make upstream investments in science that other companies are not able to. They're supposed to take their cash, any extra cash they have, and use it to buy back stock. Right. So... I think that there's a challenge here because, I, you know, by and large, I actually do think that Sergey Brin and Larry Page have done a pretty damn good job. Yeah. Certainly of building a great company and of exploring where they can invest this cash flow for the future. They've been brilliant acquirers of relevant technology. Sure. Look it's at YouTube. Very rare. Spectacular. Or, or for that matter, all, all of the uh, all of the mobile. Technology. Android, another home run. Maps was bought. Unbelievable. Yeah. The so, person behind Google Maps actually just has a book coming out. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Never well, Lost Again or something along yeah. those lines. Yeah. I'm just winging it. So, you know, but I think that that is something I had to learn by doing, mm -hmm. learn the hard way uh, in the job. We have been speaking with Bill Janeway. The Innovation Economy new edition is out with a whole digital 
um, edition. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, Bloomberg.com, Stitcher, Overcast, wherever finer podcasts are sold. And you can see any of the other 200 or so such conversations that we've had previously. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Check out my daily column on bloomberg.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps put together these podcasts each week. Taylor Riggs is our booker slash producer. Medina Parwana is my audio engineer. Michael Badnick is our head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.